I'm Taffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah. This week, Bailey, I've got some news for you. What? You know what we're not doing this week? (gasps) We're not talking about Harry Potter. We are, in fact, talking about something that we can just like uncomplicatedly because the author is a cool, queer black woman. And the book is fantastic. This week, we are reviewing The Good Luck Girls by Charlotte Nicole Davis. This book came out in October of 2019. It is a Western fantasy uh, book. It's really good. Bailey put me onto it. We were trying to decide what to review next, and Bailey said, well, I'm reading this book, and it's good. Can we just do it? Bailey, how did you find this one? So I started reading this book a couple of weeks ago. I was looking for something new to read, And I was like, I would like to intentionally seek out a novel by a Black author. Um, Because I read a lot, we read a lot of stuff by Black authors on the podcast. And I was sort of becoming aware that like, when I'm just reading for pleasure, that's not necessarily what I gravitate to. So I was like, I should work on this. Um, And so I think literally what I did is I went to our ebook app that we use. um, And I searched for... um, I want to be where you are, which is a book we read on the podcast that I really loved. And I was like, I'm just going to look at the recommended books from this book. And this one came up and I looked at the description. And I was like, oh, it's fun. And I started listening to it and I really liked it. And it just got, I had only read a few chapters when I suggested we do it on the podcast, but it just got better. And so I'm very pleased with my choice. Yeah, this was great. I actually hadn't heard of it. Um, before you recommended it and that's kind of surprising to me because we've been reading a lot of fantasy by black authors and you tend to see those recommendations come up uh, with each other but this one for whatever reason hadn't been recommended to me and it is it's uh, like I keep I feel like I just keep saying this I feel like every time we read another fantasy book pretty specifically by a, by a black author I'm like this one was even better this one was even better mm-hmm. uh, but this is like you know that I'm obsessed with Dread Nation. Such a good book. I liked this better than Dread Nation. It's this is honestly like I'm gonna I'm gonna say that this is my favorite fantasy book that I have read as an adult. Like because there are some fantasy books that I read as a teenager that just have like such a entrenched place in my heart. But like this is this is my favorite fantasy book that I have been introduced to as an adult and I read a fair bit of fantasy it's it's just so good and I cannot wait for the sequels you know what I need to circle back for a second because I said I like it better than Dread Nation and I'm now remembering that I read Dread Nation as an audiobook which is not my preferred way of reading and I read this not as an audiobook so I'm I'm maybe they might be neck and neck I would have to read Dread Nation on paper first that's fair. See, I read this one as an audiobook, which is also not my favorite mode of reading. So I feel like I'm going to need to borrow your paper copy. 
and read I, it again. I have a Kindle. I, I went ahead and finally caved and got the Kindle app because, like, uh, accessing books right now is very difficult. Um, and I'm just finding with audiobooks, I do not, I don't have time to listen to audiobooks these days, period, because I can't listen to them while I'm working um, and I can't listen to them while my children are around. Uh, but if I have, like, the Kindle app on my phone, I can read while I, like, put Toby down for a nap or something. So I can't lend it to you. I'm sorry. I did actually order a hard copy, though, so I could lend you that one. Isn't this interesting, nice. listeners? So this this one felt to me like a mashup between Dread Nation and The Bells. Mm-hmm. It reminded yeah, I me. I can of, definitely see that. Yeah, it reminded me of The Bells often for reasons I think we're going to get into a little bit later. And also of Dread Nation because it's a Western. And Dread Nation isn't exclusively a Western, but it has like Wild West elements. Yeah. And I mean, there's also, there's also like, reminds me of Firefly because it has the sort of Western, but not in our world aspect. The world building is, is very good. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool really really cool world building i i kind of like the level of world building in this one like there's different approaches to world building and so in say children of blood and bone we got a very detailed uh world building that has maps and history and mythology all very Uh, woven into the storyline in a really important way and in dread nation you get world building that's sort of based on familiar history and then spins off of that and this one i felt there's a fun approach to world building where you can tell that there is history and geography and mythology but you kind of just get dropped into it and then like figure it out referentially um and I like that. Like, you don't get dropped in and get a whole, you don't get a, a whole historical explanation of everything. You get a little bit of context as you go, as you need it. Um, and it's just a different a different approach. Uh, and it's an approach that I like. Yeah, I think that, like, the way that it is written and the way that the story tra- unfolds is very compelling. And I think that that sort of gradual world building is part of it. And how you sort of gradually get more and more layers and different things and I think uh I think that she does that very well this author um of just sort of unfolding even like I think the way the book is starts is so interesting because you start with Clementine and you think that at least I when I first started reading this book like assumed Clementine was going to be the main character um and then you realize that it's actually centering around Aster more than anything um and it's very cool Yeah, it starts from Clementine's point of view, but it never goes back to Clementine's point of view, does it? No, no, it's it's Aster's point of view the entire rest of the way. It'll be interesting to see what she does in the next book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what happens with that. So the basic premise of this book is it is a, a sort of Wild West world, but there are people who are called Dustborn who have their shadows taken away from them due to... Uh, debts that they have and the debts are put in place by you know systemic injustice um so you know you have your your class that is oppressed and you have your class that oppresses one of the ways that you can that dustborns can kind of pay off their debt is by selling their daughters into uh prostitute life prostitution 
Um, they're called Sunset Girls. Good luck, girls. Good luck, girls. So, but there's the Daybreak Girls who do like household chores, and then when you get old enough, you become a Sunset Girl, Sundown, Sundown Girl. Thank you. I knew that wasn't quite right. Um, who services clients? Also, one thing: it's dust bloods, not dust borns. Just thank you. I'm sorry, but there's somebody who's something born, right? There's a lot of words. There's a lot of vocabulary. Um, yeah, it's dust there's bloods. There's dust bloods and fair bloods. There's probably something born. I'm not sure. I feel like maybe like it's a... Anyway. Mm. <laughs> dust, basically, being the, the thing. Um, and so Clementine and Aster are sisters who were sold to become good luck girls. And uh, the the plot gets initiated when Clementine accidentally kills her first client on her first night. Um, and then things just start unfolding from there. I was reading a um, an interview with the author shortly before we started recording, and she said that she really wanted to write a Western, um, but she didn't want it to be too bound by the rules of our universe and she also wanted to write about oppression and have black characters without it being about black oppression and the only way to do that was to set it in another universe um but she did say that with the character of z who is a uh, a young man who helps them she wanted to pay homage to the history of black and indigenous cowboys because the cowboy narrative is so much so often you know the john wayne tall white man when in reality uh quite a lot of cowboys were black and indigenous um and that's a narrative that's just kind of been lost and she wanted to pay homage to that and i think that's pretty cool oh that's really cool i didn't i didn't know that detail but that yeah the way in which sort of real history is woven throughout this is so masterful and you can so i in the afterwards she talks about all of the research that she did and sort of credits all of her sources but it's really clear that she did so much research about all of these historical things that are informing this world and this plot in really interesting ways um, which is probably what part of what makes the world building so good is it's very well researched and very kind of grounded in real things, but also expanded in really fun and cool and scary ways. Now, it's a very it is an original world in a lot of ways. It's also a world, a fantasy world that feels very familiar in a lot of ways which I think is cool, the way she, she balanced both coming up with her own original take on the Western, on the, you know, coal mining town, but it doesn't feel like a story we've read before, necessarily. It doesn't feel like a world we've read before. No, and we haven't talked about the supernatural elements yet, and I think that's part of it, which is really cool, is so the other thing about this world that makes it different, um, apart from the fact that the oppressed class has no shadows, um is that ghosts are real. Um, and so the the sort of like, I guess that you kind of say the religious structure of this world is, is very much related to the dead and there are different like classes of, or different, not classes, different kinds of spirits that are very from kind of neither benevolent or malevolent to benevolent and very malevolent. And so there's, that's the the very cool sort of like magic supernatural element that's that's happening as well 
Yeah. And we get the hint, I think, that I got the hint that Clementine and Aster have kind of a special ability with regards to the dead, that they have an ability to see and sense spirits that not everybody does, which was just kind of hinted at. But I'm I'm going to be interested to see if that gets uh, unfolded more in, in future books. Mm-hmm. Did you get the idea that it was Aster as well? I, for some reason, thought it was mostly only Clementine. It may have been only Clementine. It may have been mostly only Clementine. I could I could be wrong also, though. Um, it, but it yeah. really is just barely hinted at. It's not gone into. Yeah, now that I think about it, I think maybe just Clementine. Maybe that's the same impression I got. Because I think it's supposed to be linked to um, Clementine when she was a child almost died she was bitten by a venomous snake and almost died and i think that's supposed to be why she sort of has a closer link with the dead Mm, okay yeah yeah and there's the scene on the train where she's just kind of chatting with the ghost who's hanging out uh, on the Mm -hmm. train with them um the other thing that's very much at play in the book is manipulation of emotions So the ghosts that are neutral, who are just kind of what we might think of as ghosts, they just sort of haunt the place they died, cast their feelings around them. You get the sense of what they're feeling when you're near them. And there are also uh, people, I guess, called (sighs) raveners. It's raveners. I'm sorry, my words are shot today. Who are Uh, we find out they seem sort of semi-human towards the beginning, but we find out that they are um, humans who get sort of trained into being sociopaths with magical abilities. And they have the ability to manipulate your feelings, your emotions, your sensations. Uh, and they're used as police, which is... Well, I mean, they're not strictly used as police because they do have police as well. But um, they're they're used as enforcers, kind of. Like, they're, they're basically, they, they exist to torture and terrify the oppressed classes into submission, essentially. Yeah, like, like cops in our world. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a real good allegory. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about, especially towards the beginning of the book, and, and I wanted to kind of wait and suspend my judgment on it till I got to the end of the book. But there's this trope in fantasy that comes up a lot. We see it in... Um, Handmaid's Tale, in Firefly, in this, to a certain extent in The Bells and in Dread Nation, although they have different takes on it, and I want to go into that as well. Um, But there's this idea that a fantasy world or a futuristic world um, always involves some kind of government-regulated sex work and the institutional brothel as a thing. Uh, And I said, I mean, the Bells and Dread Nation have it in a different way because they have a different way of putting girls into an enslavement that's like gender specific without being sex work. But in this, we have the brothel that, you know, young poor girls get sold into. And that's the really big bad thing that they have to fight. And I'm just really interested in this trope. And I want to be clear that when I'm looking critically at it, I'm looking critically at the trope and not specifically at Davis using this trope in this book. But I I do wonder where it comes from because institutional sex work is not really something 
that has existed in a meaningful way. Sex work has, like in, in most of the ways I can think of, been illegal. And, you know, illegal for reasons pertaining to controlling women's sexuality and fertility. And I'm just really curious about where it comes from, specifically the idea of the institutional government-sanctioned brothel. Because, like, there are the bordellos in the West, which I guess were sanctioned and that they weren't made illegal because it was there was sort of this idea that men working out in the West needed to get sex somewhere. And, like, obviously in Handmaid's Tale, it's quite different, and it's, it's more of a kind of concubine sort of situation. Uh, but I'm, I'm just, like... I'm wondering where that trope comes from, why it seems to be so ubiquitous. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, so I was actually, it was interested when you brought this up because I was like, I feel like I haven't encountered that much fantasy and sci-fi that has this, but lo and behold, most of the things that you're referencing, I have not read or watched. I mean, I like approximately know about The Handmaid's Tale, but I have not read or watched it um, or Firefly. Uh, and I forgot that that was part of um, Dread Nation. Anyways, but yeah, it is interesting. And this maybe I'm going to just briefly reference a book that we haven't read on the show because it's not. I mean, clearly it is a evil thing in this book. It is not when it exists in like sci-fi and fantasy. It is not exclusively always a bad thing, which is also interesting. Like I have seen the trope used in a like. It is not a sex slavery thing. It is a, like, government-run brothels that are actually entirely voluntary and, like, a career p- path that some people choose and enjoy. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's the way it is in, in Firefly, incidentally. Okay, cool. The, the, the thing that I'm thinking of is also, like, a futuristic sci-fi. So, yeah, I don't know where that comes from. I see there being a problem in two ways. And one of them does not get touched on in this book. One of them does actually kind of get touched on. So that's cool. The first reason that it makes me a little bit uncomfortable is that um, I feel like we're so saturated with narratives of sex work being exploitative and so saturated with the idea of sex trafficking and sex work being like inextricably linked to each other that I just... I get uncomfortable with that narrative getting pushed more. The narrative of sex work is exploitative. Sex work takes young girls and makes them slaves and, you know, is strips people of their agency. And obviously that does happen sometimes. Um, But it just... It's a narrative that makes me a little uncomfortable. And especially when it's like a a state-sanctioned sexual slavery is kind of what sex work is, it, it, I feel like it's something that is dangerous when you think about things like lawmaking around sex work. Legislation is what that word is, (laughs) legislation around sex work. Because when you have this idea that like legislating sex work leads to exploitative Uh, trafficking. That's really problematic because in this day and age, legislation is actually largely working to, pro-sex work legislation is largely working to combat trafficking by providing safe and consensual sex work. 
Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, <laughs> like in the the age of the capitalist police state, like uh, I can see this happening and somebody being like, it's great. We're legislating legal sex work. It's just oppressed classes get forced into it. Um, but it's just not really something that's that's like it, it doesn't feel familiar. It's not a bad guy that feels familiar. So that's kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. And the other aspect of it, which actually does get picked up on in the book a little bit, is this idea that somehow they are slave they are enslaved and they live in comfortable houses and get, you know, good meals and are taken care of physically, but are clearly still enslaved. And I get uncomfortable with this idea that it is somehow worse than being enslaved, say, to work in a mine forever and have your health leached out of you and never have enough to eat. Um, Because that's, again, the trope that exists in the real world, that sex work is somehow more exploitative. This idea that exploitative sex work is somehow worse than other forms of exploitative labor. And that is, again, something that we see kind of come up in anti-sex work rhetoric. Uh, That makes me uncomfortable because... Um, I do think it's a it is a terrible model to force teenagers into a life of of sexual slavery. It's also horrible to force teenagers into a life of manual slavery. It's just enslaving people is bad and it's not somehow worse because it's sex work. It's just bad because you are exploiting somebody's body and time. And it's yeah, that that is kind of what makes me uncomfortable but again I want to say like it's not about Charlotte Nicole Davis making this choice um, because I think she made this choice you know speaking to a whole um, body of work that exists and and making reference to literary and imaginative references that we understand Um, but for some reason reading this one I really started thinking about how the idea of the sort of state-sanctioned exploitative brothel speaks to rhetoric around sex work yeah no I I totally see I'm 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 like working through all of this um (laughs) like yeah no because I I think like I think the point about tropes like this can to a degree help fuel like a a demonization of sex work and an idea that sex work is always inherently exploitative and bad um Um, and i also agree that like all slavery is 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 bad yeah and it's and and the idea and the idea of trying to kind of it, it comes down to this sort of like like you can't you can't compare the apples to oranges. You can't say one kind of slavery is worse than another kind of slavery or one kind of oppression is worse than another kind of oppression. And um, I, I said that it got touched on in the book, and it does because at some point um, they encounter people who are working in the underground trying to overthrow the, um, the current uh, political rule. And uh, a lot of them are men who were working you know, in poverty, working manual labor for nothing, and who are really hesitant to accept that the good luck girls had a hard time of it because they say, well, you had, you know, a bed and food and beautiful clothes and you were always provided for. What are you complaining about? 
And that is, I mean, that's a good discourse to have brought up in it. Uh, and it did. I mean, I read that and I was like, okay, cool. That's that's touching on this sort of conflict um, that's there. But I guess just like my own, my own revolutionary heart says the government wants to make sex work look worse than other work because they want to hide that we're exploiting people at minimum wage to keep billionaires rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, that's that's fair. <laughs> Capitalism is bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Capitalism is built on wage slavery. But this I mean, book has some real smart commentary on capitalism. Which oh is boy, yeah, just great. I'll be really interested to see in the in the following book because they're Clementine and a lot of the girls, except Aster, are moving across the border into a country uh, where the system is different. And I'm going to be really curious to see what happens there, and if uh, if maybe you know there is autonomous sex work. And if if she like takes the opportunity to address that, because it's hard to judge the first installment in a fantasy series. It's hard to judge the world building when because in the first installment, you never have the full picture. I remembered the other work that this reminded me of, and it does remind me of The Hunger Games in some really significant ways. Yeah, definitely. There are absolutely elements of it. Did you want to expand on that? or? Um, it's just, it's more the feeling. I mean, part of that is the mining town aspect that's very strong in District uh, in District 9. Part of it's the extremely wealthy capital kind of living on the labor of the very poor, which is, you know, a commentary we see a lot right now because we live in a society that um, provides the wealthy minority with the labor of the majority but I yeah that's that was more the feeling that there's great wealth and great poverty and the great wealth is built on the great poverty and doesn't really want to see it there's also a lot of yeah a lot of commentary Mm -hmm. on on the threat to property which is very timely these days true there's also the I think that both of those both of those two fantasy worlds also meaning this one and the Hunger Games also, um, those worlds make explicit the sort of implicit um, rhetoric that goes on in our own world of um, like oppress the oppressed classes like deserving what they have. Um, like that is that is something that's I think is made like is an explicit part of the worldview in both this universe and the Hunger Games universe. And in this universe, it's it's debt, right? Which is um, really uh, timely, also. Well, there's even one character in in this book towards towards the end who repeatedly, and I'm not going to remember the exact line, but something like, in in this country, um, everybody gets what they deserve. Yeah, and it's sort of a real a way of kind of re- reinforcing. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I feel like we're both in a sort of a sort of flat brain state today. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it really like it reinforces it's 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 rhetoric that in world is meant to well it, it both is is meant to sort of reinforce to the to the death bloods that they do not deserve better and so should not seek better and to sort of show us how the ruling classes like sort of the monstrosity of 
of the the believing that they are inherently better than than the other humans. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another aspect of this book that's really really nice is casual queers casually existing, and we do keep an eye out for this. And lo and behold, there are some. I like how the the girls who are a couple in it it just kind of develops, and there's this acknowledgement that they always had a special thing and now they're able to uh, express it Mm -hmm. Um, and all of the characters are really really thought out really fleshed out Um, yeah I want to go back to casual queers casually existing because this is another one of those examples of just like just small things being dropped in which are just beautiful like we also and I I don't want to like go super into it because it's like beautiful to discover as you're reading but we also just get like a few small hints sprinkled in of one of the characters kind of experimenting with gender pushing the boundaries um and that's really cool which one do you see experimenting with gender um Mallow okay Interesting. That's not something I necessarily picked up on. There's a few. It's it, it's it's just a few little things. I can. Well, I guess okay. Minor spoiler, but I will outline them now for people interested. So, there's one point where she's talking about her and her brother. Yes. Yeah. And and how like we when we were kids we said that he should have been born the girl and I should have been born the boy. And then there's later there's just again it's just dropped in when um two characters are going to be going on this sort of covert mission and they're posing as men to be more um, like under the radar and it's like Mallow showed them how to bind their chest flat something that she'd been doing since they left the welcome house. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so there's just, it's just it's just sprinkled in, but it's really cool. Yeah, that's really nice. Okay, yeah, I think I, I read those but didn't like um I remember noticing her talking about her brother and and I read that more noticing her brother than noticing her. Mm-hmm. But that's fun and that's gonna be neat to see uh going forward. Very like I think it's it's just very cool. It's it's neat how it's just sort of hinted at and sort of dropped in. Um and just yeah, I think it's really well done. Another really significant theme, uh in the book is the theme of names because the good luck girls have their names changed when they enter the house they all have the names of flowers and um the sisters aster and clementine still refer to each other as their given names and aster especially has a whole narrative of reclaiming her name yeah i think the stuff with names is really interesting and like how and when because the sisters do refer to each other by their given names, but only sometimes. Yeah. Only, like, usually, like, in very, like, emotionally charged moments. Um, and so that, like, I thought, I just think that the whole way that that all works is really interesting. Like, um, there, there's, there's an Aster muses on it early, talking about how they mostly don't tell each other what their, what their names were before, because it's almost, like, painful to, like think about the people that they were before they Mm -hmm. came to the welcome house um but then also you do see sort of like a little bit gradually more as the book goes on 
them using each other's given names a little bit more. The other thing that I noticed that was interesting is that um, all of the girls except for Violet and Aster are very frequently referred to um, by nicknames of their welcome house names, not their full names. Um, and I don't know if that's significant, but I thought it was interesting. And and then, yeah, and then I just love, like, how we see towards the end of the book um, Aster kind of really reclaiming her her given name in a really powerful way and that being sort of an important part of her journey i hate that word but like oh do you i don't hate i feel like i feel like there should be a better word that i should be using there instead of journey journey but journey uh, journey applies i mean it applies very literally too Um, true yeah no i think it's a good word yeah the ending we were kind of going back and forth on can we spoil this ending because the ending is really good and the book was fairly recently released and we don't necessarily want to spoil it but uh the ending is great it's a really satisfying ending so satisfying yeah made me feel so many emotions tefer yeah so many emotions it's really good this is just such a good book oh we haven't even gotten into and i think we're we're close to needing to wrap up, but we haven't even gotten into the, there's this incredible theme of anger that flows throughout this book mm-hmm. and, and sort of being afraid of anger and then reclaiming anger. That is really, really cool too. Um, again, when I was reading the interview uh, with Charlotte Nicole Davis, she said she very deliberately made Aster the angry black girl character. And Clementine mm. is the so Aster is is showing that anger is productive, anger is positive, anger gets things done, um, and and it is not a bad thing. Clementine alternately is showing that black girls can be soft and gentle and loving, and that that is also positive. She said she really really wanted to think about a diversity of characters and show. Um, all the possibilities and how all of the different ways of being are um, productive and good, but especially with Aster, that that anger is useful. Um, and like, I really liked how they kept kind of doing hot-headed schemes that worked. Like, action really works in this book, and and it really flies in the face of this idea that like everything has to be really carefully thought through. They have a number of schemes where they don't have time to think it through. And they just kind of go about it with passion, and it works. Mm-hmm. Or things that aren't even really schemes, they're just like, they are really angry and they do a thing without thinking about it, and then it turns out to actually have been a good strategic move. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really cool, yeah. And I love also how we see Aster, um, like, the book is definitely like the book is showing that anger can be productive, but also the book is Aster learning that anger can be productive, I think. Mm-hmm. Because Aster starts out kind of afraid of her anger and learns learns that it isn't a bad thing, mm-hmm. which I really love. It's a really good book. It's such a good book. Such a good book. Everybody should just read it because it's so good. And I, re- I want the sequel like tomorrow. Um... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, when you finish a book and you're just sad that the sequel isn't around yet, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the only problem with reading new releases. Yeah. So this is The Good Luck Girls by Charlotte Nicole Davis. It's really good. I feel like it's not maybe getting as much public attention as uh, some of the other recent um, fantasy books, and that's really a shame because it, it really, really holds its own. It's very good. It's very visual. Yeah, it's it's just so, like, the, the world is just so rich and layered, and the characters are so good, and the relationships between characters are so good. Mm-hmm. I also just love a book that's, like, I, like scrappy band of people gets together and fights the bad guys um, yeah which this falls into in a very satisfying way yeah so yeah so it's great read it I want to put a quick word out about uh sourcing books which we kind of referred to briefly at the beginning of this episode um Especially because libraries are not accessible right now, we are having a lot of trouble sourcing books. And so at this point, uh, our accessing books are coming out of our pockets, which, you know, is is fine because this is a project we do uh, for fun, but also is not going to be sustainable for very long. Um, We would really like to continue reviewing new releases, uh, but it's very difficult to do that without buying a lot of new hardcovers. Um, we're looking into a number of different ways <laughs> uh, to to find funding for this. Um, but in the meantime, if you are able, if you are not a patron and you are able to give even one dollar a month, that helps. It would be really, really great to. Uh, to get a little more support so we can continue reviewing new releases uh, without having to spend quite a lot of money um, out of pocket. We also have the option to donate a book. So if you don't, uh, if you aren't able to give an ongoing pledge, but you can make a one-time, say, $20 donation, um, we do have a way for you to do that. So you can, I think we maybe have a link to that uh, somewhere. Um, but you can also just message us if that's something you're interested in, and we're going to work on making that a more accessible option soon. Um, also, I mean, if you are a publisher or know somebody who's a publisher and you want to send us arcs or books, um, we have an address that you can send that to that's in the show notes every week. And uh, we always really appreciate that. It would, it would be really great. So thanks so much for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. I will pause while you type in your password. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at thebalesosaurus and at tepperbear. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Reshi, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, and Chantal Thomas. Uh, Your name could be here too. We love you. Thanks. We also have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend, maybe a friend who loves a good fantasy book special thanks to great bear for letting us use their song jenny's groove as our theme music you can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com 
This episode was produced by Tevra Jemian. That's me, and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. I'm Tom Zalatni, host and producer of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast. What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and be super duper open about the ways that we're struggling to become better people along the way. Still have no idea what I'm talking about? Fair enough. Come give us a listen. The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey there, campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast.